0: All right, I want to start out with a couple of questions. First one is this, do you struggle with fear in witnessing of Christ? Now, this ties right into what Curtis was sharing, doesn't it? Do you struggle with fear in witnessing of Christ? And I know your answer, it's yes. Isn't it? Yeah, we struggle with fear. So second question, have you ever failed to speak of Christ because of fear? Have you ever failed to speak of Christ because of your fear? Maybe it was at work, around the break room table, or with a neighbor over the fence. Or if you're a student here at school, or possibly with a family member. It can be really tough with family members, can't it? (laughs) Do I speak up? How do I speak up? The conversation comes around to spiritual things, and because of fear... You fail to speak of Christ. Am I dealing with a topic this morning? Is our passage dealing with a topic that's relevant to your life? Fear, fear, all kinds of fear. Uh, Rejection. They're not going to like me. They're going to think I'm some sort of freak or some religious freak. Uh, The unknown. I don't know what they're going to say, where this conversation is going to take us. It might be confrontation. They might actually... Say some mean things to me. Embarrassment, tongue-tied, saying the wrong thing, finding the right time. Sometimes we struggle with that. When's the right time? You've been there, haven't you? You have this prompting to share, and yet it's, is this the right time? Do I speak up now? And we struggle with those things. I want to make you a promise, all right, that our passage today, F applied by you, will help you overcome fear in your witnessing. I promise it. No, I have to grapple with the passage and understand it and apply it. Not just the hearing of the word, but the doing of the word. But I make a promise that if you apply what we find in our passage today, as we look at Peter and John, as they are persecuted in sharing their faith, if we apply it, it will help us do with our fear. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at the first 22 verses, the most of the chapter, and my message is simply titled, Overcoming Fear in Witnessing of Christ. Overcoming Fear in Witnessing of Christ. I know the topic is relevant. Uh, I, I struggle with it, you struggle with it, so let's just throw that out there. It's like, alright, what can we learn from Peter and John as they stand trial before the Sanhedrin? Well, let's talk about context. We want to get our bearings. At the end of chapter 2, we are given a snapshot of the early church in its early days. When we go to chapter 2, verse 42, all the time, they were continually devoting themselves to apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, which is the exalting of Christ, and prayer. And so we're told the priorities of the early church, and after Luke states them, He gives further explanation. So notice chapter 2, verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. So the apostles are performing signs and wonders that validate their proclamation of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 3, we are given a specific sign Chapter 2, Luke simply alludes to the fact that they were doing them. Well, now in chapter 3, we are given one of those signs and wonders. That's where we were two weeks ago. Peter and John come to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They come to the temple, and there's a lame man begging. They say, we don't have silver or gold, but what we have we will give to you. In the name of Jesus, the Nazarene, rise up and walk. Whoa. Wouldn't you love to have been there? Uh, This guy was all excited because we're told he's walking and leaping and praising God in the temple. He's holding on to John and Peter. He's all excited for what these guys have done for him. His health has been restored. And what happens then is Peter and John, Peter in particular, preaches Christ. There's this crowd that has gathered And so Peter lays hold of the opportunity, and he proclaims Christ. And that brings us then to chapter 4, because as they are proclaiming Christ, they're arrested. Some of the authorities show up and say, it's time for you to cease and desist. You're coming with us. And they're arrested. They're put in jail. So, So that brings us to our passage. We're going to look at Peter and John, stand trial before the Sanhedrin. The boldness that they have in doing so. Very simple outline. First of all, we're going to talk about the persecution for their proclamation. Then we're going to talk about the power behind their proclamation. They're going to be persecuted by by what name or authority. And they're going to tell the Sanhedrin by what authority, by what power they were preaching. And then at the end, just briefly, we'll mention the prohibition of their proclamation. You guys need to cease and desist. And so it starts out, verses 1 through 7, persecution for proclamation. We we read in verse 1, as they were speaking to the people. This is Peter and John, the priest and the captain of the temple guard. And the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed. Would you say that with me? Greatly disturbed. Yeah. Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. This is the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power, or in what name, have you done this? By what power, and what name, have you done this? And so we see Peter and John are arrested. They're dragged before the Sanhedrin to stand trial. And we need to notice that Luke gives us a long list of the authorities that are coming against them. They have a question of authority. By what authority are you doing this? Peter and John are standing before, basically, the greatest authorities in Jerusalem, at least as far as the Jews. Luke doesn't want us to miss this. So he lists some 11, I believe, 10 or 11 entities Verse one, the priests were there. Josephus tells us that there were 20,000 Levitical priests broken down into 24 divisions, each in rotation, serving two weeks a year. So they were really the leaders at the temple in, in a sense, practically speaking. And so they're bothered that these two guys are starting to proclaim Christ, right? Who do you think you are? The, the, our role were the intermediaries between God and man. The captain of the temple guard, he was second in authority only to the high priest. This was a very important person. Then Luke tells us the Sadducees were there. They're a powerful sect in Judaism. The high priest was a Sadducee. Many of them were wealthy landowners. They were the aristocracy. They were the wealthy men of their community. They were theological liberals, we could say. They denied all but the first five books of the Old Testament, only held to the first five books of the Pentateuch. They denied a resurrection from the dead. What were Peter and John proclaiming? The resurrection of the dead. And the Sadducees are greatly disturbed by their proclamation. So that's just verse 1. In verses 5 and 6, Luke lists others coming against Peter and John. These authorities, the Sanhedrin. Those who would conduct their trial. The rulers, priestly leaders, the elders, tribal leaders, the scribes who were the teachers of the law. The most learned men in the law. And then the high priest and all of those of priestly descent. And the four of them are listed by name. Annas, Caiaphas, John, Alexander. And so we cannot miss it. Impossible to miss that Luke wants to emphasize the authorities that are arraigned against Peter and John. He wants us to see that. But, verse 4 begins. How does it begin? But, many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. And so there was this opposition by the authorities of the Jews to the proclamation of the gospel regarding Jesus Christ. But despite such, and in the midst of such, the church of Jesus Christ was moving forward. God was calling out a people. Just like in Afghanistan or Iraq or Iran, God in the midst of that is calling out a people. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You get it, yeah. and so as we apply this, I want to apply it to say that we should expect opposition to our proclamation of Jesus Christ. We should. We should expect it. Why is that? Well, because we've been warned. We've been warned by by Jesus repeatedly. This is John fifteen. If the world hates you, you know that it is hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So Jesus spoke to his disciples of it. And then Paul, writing to Timothy, he says, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and suffering, such as happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. And then verse 12, Paul to Timothy says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so we should expect to be opposed for our proclamation of Jesus Christ. We've been warned about it. And then we realize, don't we, that we are in a war. We're in a spiritual war. There's so much more going on than we see with our physical eyes. We have a spiritual entity, an enemy, who stirs up things so that persecution comes. Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers, powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so there's this warfare that's taking place in the spiritual realm. And we're a part of that. We should expect conflict, right? John MacArthur, writing of this, says in modern times... The church, at least in the West, and he's talking here about us and not in the East. Curtis has already alluded to the East and the persecution, the physical persecution there. But at least in the West has rarely faced physical persecution. Satan's attacks have become much more subtle. The type of attack detailed, for example, in C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. Uh, this book is about a senior demon speaking to a junior demon about how to bring opposition to believers Instead of threatening the body, Satan's persecutions today aim at the ego. They threaten our selfish pride, our need for acceptance, our status. Satan has largely destroyed the spiritual effectiveness of the church without having to kill the individual believers in it. He doesn't have to persecute us, or bring against us against physical persecution, but there's this challenging of our ego, our pride. We don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to be shamed. And so we, because of that, do not proclaim Christ. In fact, letting believers live self-centered, complacent, indolent, worldly lives is more effective in keeping people from being attracted to the Christian faith than killing them. Martyrs are respected for the strength of their character. Compromisers are despised. Interesting statement. And so in our passage, we start out with this persecution that comes against John and Peter for their proclamation of the gospel. And the leadership, the Sanhedrin wants to know, what is the power behind this? What authority do you have to do this? We are the authority. We're the authority, and we haven't given you permission to proclaim this message. And so notice verse 7, the power behind their proclamation. When they had placed Peter and John in the center, they began to inquire, by what power and what name have you done this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well. Let it be known to you all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which has become the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And so the Sanhedrin, the authorities in Jerusalem, with Peter and John standing before them, want to know by what power or in what name have you done this. They want to know who gave you the authority to be teaching in the temple precincts. Who gave you this authority? What's the power behind you and your action? That's what they want to know. And in what he writes and what they proclaim, Luke gives us two answers. And this is so important for us to know. Because I believe these answers set us free from our fears in witnessing of Christ. Who gave you the authority to do this? First of all, Luke wants us to know And he slips it in in a very subtle way. But it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the power. The Holy Spirit is the authority. That's how he begins verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to him. And so Peter and John were acting in the enablement of the Holy Spirit. And we must not miss that. What sets us free in our witnessing of Christ? What enables us in our witnessing of Christ? What enables us to deal with our fears in witnessing of Christ? It is the enablement of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, Jesus said to his disciples, You'll receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. And so in a rather subtle way, Luke slips in as he talks about Peter. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. That was behind his power. That brought about his enablement. He slips that in. But really, the emphasis is going to be made on the name of Jesus Christ. That's the authority. That's where Peter goes with it. As he gives them an answer. It's the name of Jesus Christ. Notice. If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man. As to how this man has been made well. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel. It's by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Whom you crucified. Whom God raised from the dead. By this name. This man stands here before you in good health. The word name. Is significant for us to see here. It's given some four times in verses seven through 12. One's name speaks of who they are, speaks of their power and authority. And so Peter and John make it known that they were acting under the authority of Jesus Christ. They were acting in light of the power of Jesus Christ. They were demonstrating through their actions who Jesus is. He is the Son of God who died but was raised from the dead and has been exalted to the right hand of the Father and has poured out the Spirit. That's the power behind their proclamation. And I'll make that emphasis in a minute. But I would submit to you that that's the power behind your proclamation. And if you can understand that, it will free you from your fear. We just need to understand better who Jesus is. That sets us free from our fear. In what he says, Peter declares two things about Jesus. Basically, two things. Number one... He speaks of two responses. There have been two responses to Jesus that he identifies. Whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. He is the stone which you rejected, but which has become the chief cornerstone. And so Peter talks about these responses to Jesus and the authority of Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about the importance of Jesus. And he goes on to say, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which has become the chief cornerstone and there's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So he speaks of the importance of Jesus, who Jesus is, then the importance of who he is. He's the chief cornerstone. Rejected by you, but God's chief cornerstone. He is the, the stone that was placed really at the corner of the building, anchoring it. The chief cornerstone was the most significant stone in a structure. Ephesians 2, Paul says, The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And so they're proclaiming to the Sanhedrin and authorities that they're standing before that Jesus is the one upon whom the work of God as it is moving forward is built. That's who he is. That's the authority behind our proclamation. See, it's all it has to do with this idea of authority. Authority. We're the authority. What's your authority? And they're saying it's Jesus you need to understand who jesus is that's what they're doing and then they proclaim verse 12 there's salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved what a declaration to be making in that context As they stand before the Sanhedrin who Peter had just accused them of rejecting Christ and crucifying Christ. And after making that declaration, he says to them, there's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Talk about boldness. So they declare to the Sanhedrin, the rejecters of Christ, you either come to God through Christ or you don't come at all. You either build on Christ or you build in error." Steve Gare, in his commentary, says this. This declaration teaches in indisputable terms that Jesus is God's exclusive means of salvation, our deliverance. Along with Jesus' own statement referencing as being the way, the truth, and the life, and no one coming to the Father except through him, John 14. This is without question the most audacious statement on the exclusivity of Jesus imaginable. Jesus is not one way or a way to God. He is the only way. No one, no Jew, no matter how observant, can be saved apart from Jesus without exception. And then he talks about the context. Consider that Peter was addressing the most orthodox, stringently observant Jews of his day. The most punctilious, devout, and educated adherents to the Torah of their generation. The ecumenists of our age who in the name of tolerance and open-mindedness believe that there are many pathways to God patently demonstrate their acute ignorance of Peter's declaration. What a great statement. Yeah. There's salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. You've rejected him, but we're here proclaiming him. You have authority but nothing like his authority. And we act under his authority in light of who he is. And so let's apply it. We're talking about overcoming fear and witnessing of Christ. I think there are two critical dynamics, and I must say that I, I don't remember these being talked about a lot when it comes to evangelism and evangelism training. But the first one I would submit to you is to know the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That's, it says Peter spoke what? In the fullness of the Spirit. You receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You should be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. And so as we act in the fullness of the Spirit, the Spirit who's gifted us for ministry, and perhaps out of our gifting we proclaim Christ, the Spirit who gives wisdom, emboldens our speech, brings to mind Scripture, an understanding of who Christ is, the Spirit who not only enables us but works through what we do, the Spirit who directs our activities. It's in the power of the Spirit that our witnesses embolden. And then the second dynamic is to know the glory of Jesus Christ and that we act in His authority. That's the emphasis that Luke is making, that Peter is proclaiming. By what authority? Why are you doing this? And he proclaims Christ. And then verse 13 is very interesting as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Being with Jesus will transform your witness. Coming to understand who Jesus is will transform your witness. Coming to understand the glory and magnificence of our Lord Jesus Christ will set you free from your fear of witnessing. It may not be that your knees may knock a little bit, but that the glory of who Jesus is will embolden you to speak up for him. Because we go with his authority. We go under the glory of who he is and probably what makes us fearful in our witness is that our Jesus is too small. And because our Jesus is so small, we fear things we should not fear. We fear authorities that we should not fear. We fear people we should not fear because we don't know the magnificence of Jesus and what it means to act under his authority. Wow. John Ortberg Talks about walking in Newport Beach, South California. He was with two friends. He's a pastor. Uh, another pastor's with him, and then an elder from their church. So these are the leaders in this from this particular church, at least some of the leaders. And they're walking and they go past a the bar, and there's this fight in the bar. And it breaks out into the streets. All right? And there's these three guys beating another guy up. So here this is all unfolding before these three church leaders and they realize that they probably ought to try to do something. And so he, he, he says this, we knew we had to do something so we went over to break up the fight. I don't think we were very intimidating. All we did was walk over and say, hey you guys cut that out. <laughs> he says it didn't do much good. Hey you guys need to stop. Please. You gotta stop beating on him. Didn't help. And then all of a sudden he says the, these guys had this look of fear. These guys were beating up this single individual had this look of fear and they kind of slinked off and away and, and, and Ortberg's wondering what happened until he turned around and he said out of the bar, from the bar came, he says the biggest man I think I've ever seen. Six feet, seven inches tall, something like that, maybe 300 pounds, maybe 2% 2 body fat, just huge. He says, we called him Bubba. Not to his face, but afterwards when we talked about him, we called him Bubba. This is a true Bubba. And then he says this, Bubba didn't say a word. He just stood there and flexed. You could tell he was hoping they would try and have a go at him. And all of a sudden my attitude was transformed. And I said to those guys, you better not catch us, just catch you coming around here again. (laughs) I was a different person because I had a great big bubba. I was ready to confront with resolve and firmness. I was released from anxiety and fear. I was filled with boldness. And confidence. I was ready to help somebody that needed helping. I was ready to serve where serving was required. Why? Because I had a great big baba. I was convinced I was not alone. I was saved. Brothers and sisters, that's the message I'm proclaiming to you this morning. That was Peter and John in the temple. That was Jesus Christ. They understood the glory of who Jesus was. Who glory? The glory of who Jesus is. And in light of who He is there was this boldness in expression because they realized Jesus is the chief cornerstone. That Jesus is the only way back to the Father. And so out of that understanding of who Jesus is and the authority he had given to them, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And so it's in light of who Jesus is that they were bold. Do you see it? Do you see it in our passage? The persecution that came against them, all the authorities arrayed against them. Luke wants us to see that. He purposefully lists them all. And in the midst of all of that, as they're pointing their long bony fingers at them, by what authority, with confidence they proclaim, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, that's the authority. Oh, you crucified him. God raised him from the dead. You rejected him as the cornerstone. But he is indeed God's cornerstone. Upon which he's building his edifice, the church. Wow. Amen. Amen. Final section. They're going to speak up and they're going to say, you guys got to quit. (laughs) Weekly. (laughs) You guys got to quit. Notice. As they observe the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men for the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach in all at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis upon which to punish them. And on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And so the Sanhedrin, trying to gather some boldness, tells them they need to stop. They need to cease cease and desist from preaching and teaching in Jesus' name. And what is their response? Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we can't stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. Whether it's right to obey God or to obey you, you will go ahead and you make your judgment But we are going to keep on speaking. You're not shutting us up. Do what you will. Make any judgments you choose, but we're not shutting up. Why? Why? Because we've seen the glory of Jesus. That's why. We understand who he is. That's why. It's his authority, his name that we're acting. Let's close. Let's drive this all a little bit further into our minds, into our hearts. The Andy Griffith Show. Stephen was telling me, I don't see Stephen here, that I think he's watched all the episodes. Most of them. How many of us like Andy Griffith? Yeah, it's kind of fun TV. It's how TV used to be. There's this episode where Andy's out of town. And so Barney's in charge. And so he deputizes Gomer. You know, Gomer's an auto mechanic. And so the two of them one night are walking down the street and they look and they see that the bank is being robbed. They duck behind a car. They're scared. They don't know what to do. And, and after a while, evidently Gomer looks at Barney. He says, Shazam! We need to call the police! (laughs) And Barney, exasperated, shouts back. He says, We are the police! police we got to do something let me get my bullet <laughs> right, right one bullet in his pocket yeah we look at our culture and we say somebody's got to do something i know you do you look at the direction our culture's going and what's happening our moral slide our pluralism And we say, you know, somebody's got to do something. Well, you know what? You're the somebody. You. Me. We're the ones who are salt and light. We're the ones who need an emboldened witness so that we'll speak up in different settings as the opportunity avails itself. And we speak up. Why? Why? Because we know and experience the fullness of the Spirit and we act under the authority of Jesus Christ. And we speak up. And as we see in Acts 4, there was opposition. But we read in verse 4, but the Lord was adding to their number. And as we speak up with an emboldened witness, I believe we will see God work in more and more significant ways. Can I hear an amen? It's you. And it's it's us this holiday season. Opportunities. I've got questions for you in your notes. And the last one says, are you working your three, two, one as we move forward towards Christmas Eve? Just, just as simple as can be. And I experience the same challenge you do. I've got to be working on my three, two, one. I'm praying for some people, looking for opportunities to do good. And then in boldness, and I'm not sure how bold, much boldness it takes to give them an invite and say, hey, special Christmas Eve service. On the 24th at our church, would you join me and be my friend? Wow. Father, we give you praise. There's a lot in this passage. We thank you for examples of men like Peter and John who knew the glory of Jesus. And because of their understanding, fearlessly proclaimed him when all the authorities of Jerusalem were arrayed against them. Father, we'll probably never face that kind of opposition. We face people who may call us weird or religious freaks, question our message. Oh, but Father, may we be people who are bold because we realize who Jesus is. That, that's it. And we walk in the fullness of your spirit. And then we realize that uh, somebody has to do something. We're the somebody. We've been commissioned. All authority. On heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'll be with you to the end of the age. Father, may we in boldness go out under the authority of Jesus Christ. Help us to understand that authority for our lives, the fullness of your spirit for our lives.